Thank you, choir, for that. Good morning, church. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, please. Today's sermon is titled, The Gates of the City. For those of you who have been sort of following along with us in our series, in chapter 3, the Jews in the book of Nehemiah um, are coming back from Babylon and have received permission from King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They brought over supplies and began uh, rebuilding their walls around their city's capital. Uh, the entire chapter is a basically list of names uh, and the order of them that built the wall of Jerusalem. Now, when you come to a book like Nehemiah, especially chapter 3, you can do your share of digging. You can look around the Internet. You can find commentaries. And, and t- it, the tendency, tendency to this is to look at it thematically only and kind of say to accomplish God's purpose, right? We need a common vision, dedicated leaders, willing workers, right? It's a leadership. Look what we can accomplish together. Now, of course, these elements are implicit and explicit in this chapter. They are definitely there, and you do get to see the beauty of a shared vision among the people of God as they are together, and you see what they can accomplish when God's with them, when God's on their side, and when they're working together, unified. You get a bit of that John 17, high priestly prayer vibe. Um, But that's not what this morning is all about. When this book was written, Nehemiah was operating at a different stage in redemptive history. Um, What I mean by that is it was a time in which God was bringing salvation through a particular people, a group known as a nation state, particular chosen race called the Hebrews or the Israelites, however you prefer. And you couldn't have a nation state without a capital. And the capital had to have a wall around it or urban life couldn't develop. Back then, the city was the place where you could have rule of law. Uh, The city was the place where you could have stable economy, that sort of thing. And Nehemiah isn't simply following his passion or a set of leadership skills here. He is being faithful to his God. What you are witnessing is a man in love with his God. Precious are his plans and his purposes for me. You are seeing an obedient man. The people of God, in turn, have to be faithful to the will of God. And at that stage of redemptive history, before Christ came down, Before the incarnation, this is how you grew the kingdom of God on earth. Well, where are we in redemptive history? Where are we right now, brothers and sisters in Christ? Those of us, Amelia Baptists, are visiting all over the country, all outside the country. We also have to be building up the people of God through conversion. It's not us that save, but we present the gospel of Jesus Christ through faithful preaching. People hear because of what the Spirit does. Titus 3.5, Spirit of God who saves. We also build walls to the things of this world all the time to protect ourselves, holiness. The church should be just as much about discipleship as it is missions. It's equally important. And so this concept that we get behind is to say on this side of redemptive history, we're reaching others with the gospel, but how are they made holy now? Well, they're made holy through sanctification. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It happens after salvation. The Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And that pain you feel constantly, dying, killing your flesh, your spirit increasing, that refining fire, as it's often mentioned, that's a work of the Lord. And it's there to make you and mold you more into the image of Christ Jesus. That is how God's people are refined today. Which, again, we're reminded it's not something we've done. This is an act of God's grace. It's not by our own works of which we are saved. We've been saved by faith in Christ. 
And all of it was because God gave it to us without us having to earn it. And he did so by giving us his son. So many of us know that, but do we know what we have in common with the Hebrew people in Nehemiah 3? Do we understand they were rebuilding the walls of their once cities? So like they were, what we have in common with them is that you and I are still looking forward and towards the ultimate city. Please catch that there, because some of us can get trapped in just thinking of Jerusalem. It's just this earthly place, earthly walls. And you have to understand that what we are sharing with those Hebrews is that we are looking through an ultimate city. We are witnessing citizens being added to the kingdom every day through faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through works of the Spirit. And we are still under the authority of the one true God, the unchanging God, immutable God, same yesterday and today and tomorrow. We share that bond with these workers, still trusting him with the plans and purpose of our lives, which is a lot easier to say out loud than it is to live. Trusting God with our plans and purposes. What we need to understand about this chapter is that we will be looking at the heart of this task before us And at this symbolism represented in the gates of this wall, but I want to tell you, it's without stretch or elaboration. I'm not sitting here mashing puzzle pieces trying to make them fit. We're going to be loyal to the Scripture because that is the the authority of which we are under. We are focusing on the Christology of this Old Testament text and how everything is a narrative that points to our Savior, King Jesus. Everything. Let's not dismiss it. Um, and I, I got to go ahead and say this. You're going to be hearing build the wall a lot in this text. <laughs> let the Bible proceed anything else that we think about when we think about build the wall. Let's just let this speak today, all right? Just fair warning. There it's been said. Let's not edit that out to where I just said build the wall, please. All right. This morning, I'm so afraid of this. Next week, next week. Next week, Neil will actually continue elaborating on chapter 3, looking at the glory of God shown when his people obey and commands and cooperation. But for today, we will answer the question, what are the gates? What was their literal function? What do they symbolize, if anything? And how can we walk away from this morning with our hands filled with application on this side of redemptive history? That's our mentality. So because even though, and we get caught up in this, even though books like Nehemiah and Esther may be difficult to read and get a bunch of application from, like it's John or Galatians, we still must remember 2 Timothy 3.16, right? That all, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Not just some, not just the easy portions. The Bible is one story with one large narrative arc. Um, we've actually been to Israel before. Uh, Amy, Joe, and I, before we were married, we uh, were engaged there, actually, on a mission trip. Um, I figure if you're going to ask Mary, Amy, Joe to marry you, you need to do it up big. Um, <laughs> or else it may not happen. I'm just kidding. I don't think that's the only thing. But so we had a buddy of mine. He said, look, man, this is the way you do it. You, at night, you go to the Mount of Olives. The whole city lights up. It overlooks the walls of Jerusalem. And, and you popped the question right there. And so I was already a little nervous. But uh, it's a pretty big deal. And so we were on the Mount of Olives at night. It worked out just like he had planned it. Had I planned it, it would have been disastrous. And I asked her, and she said yes, as you know. Um, <laughs> speaking of if, if, if she said yes or not, um, the third baby could be here any minute. So if you see me dart out of here, Neil's just going to come in, and we're going to work like that. It's family, family equipping. Um, 
Family equipping. That's what that means. He comes up, he just guesses for the next 30 minutes of what, yeah, we're good to go. Um, but just to kind of give you a visual, I was so nervous at this one occasion to look at the walls that I don't really remember them that well. Like it was a pretty painstaking ordeal to pop that question. Um, but the gates mentioned in chapter three, and, and I love this because it's so fresh in some of your minds because you just visited there last year. And so a lot of you are like, no, I remember exactly what that is. And so Nehemiah in chapter three, this is building the walls around the capital. You see the two main gates at the northern entrance on either side of what where now is the Dome of the Rock. And these gates point to New Testament truths. And Jerusalem is a sign of something bigger that's coming. So typically at this point, we would stand in the reading of God's word. But trust me on this. We're just going to dive right in. The entire chapter 32, each verse sounds a lot like the next one. And we're going to be going through it. But the best thing you can do for this morning is to have your Bibles open and follow along with me. So we will spend as much time as we have walking through the gates until we get to the one that matters most. Amen? As you look down and read, don't be intimidated. Chapter 3 is tough for many. Probably the most best-selling book on uh, Nehemiah in the last three decades is Chuck Swindoll's book, Hand Me Another Brick. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Uh, he doesn't even do chapter 3. It's not even in his book, and it's the best-selling one on Nehemiah. So in contrast, your pastors are going to spend two Sundays on a chapter that Chuck Swindoll didn't even do because we're counterculture, and that's what we do here. Remember... <laughs> Remember the quote of one of our newest members, right? I've always felt like a weirdo, but here at Amelia Baptist, I feel normal. We're going to run with that. We were offended at first. Now it makes more sense. So it might seem long and tedious to you when you're reading through it, but believe me, I promise you, the whole thing is precious and it's eye-opening and it's encouraging because our Savior lives. So verse 1 gives us our first gate. And I'll just be reading bits and pieces of it for you as we kind of continue to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, which just means dedicated, and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. This is between the watchtowers, basically. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, the son of Emery, built. Now think of what this construction project entails. Wood, tools, labor, and as we read, and you'll see this is a constant kind of thing, bolts, bars, and beams. Bolts, bars, and beams. It's constantly repeated throughout the chapter. And the gates we are about to explore in order, counterclockwise from the northernmost, they will be encircling the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so the first gate is the sheep gate. That's what Nehemiah decides to start with. And the function of this gate was this is where they brought the animals in to the city, including mainly the temple sacrifices. It was called sheep for a reason because the Hebrews were still under the animal sacrificial system. Blood had to be shed for sin to be covered. And so this is taking place mainly through the sheep gate. The main entrance is the entrance of sacrifices. So it was logical the priests made this their special project. This is the only gate of which it is recorded, by the way, of the entire temple to be a sanctified gate. Uh, I didn't know this, but in John 5, 2, I mean, I just had to kind of research it, I guess, but the sheep gate was near the pool of Bethesda where Jesus heals the paralytic. So it starts to kind of make some sense, right? You start to get the imagery a bit when you're using stories you're most familiar with. So what does this gate mean? Is there any symbolism attached to it? 
This gate should remind us of Jesus Christ. When we see this gate, we should be reminded that it's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world. And at a time where blood had to be shed for the payment of our sins and lambs were purchased and slaughtered so man could be right with God, in John 1, deep in the wilderness, the supposed madman John the Baptist sees his cousin coming towards him. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Nehemiah could have begun this chapter 3 account with any door. It's counterclockwise. He could have started anywhere, but he starts with Jesus. Why? Because everything starts with Jesus. Everything. It reminds me that it all starts with Jesus, and we need to remember that. All things were made through him. We see this in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture in John 1, 1 through 4. He was in the beginning. He is God the Son. And next was the fish gate. If you look down at chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. The fish gate. This was located to the west of the sheep gate. And between them were the two watchtowers. So you have two main entrances to the temple and they're on the northernmost side. And you have the sheep and the fish gates. Soldiers guarded the temple and protected the northern approach to the city, so it was a pretty vulnerable area. But merchants used this gate when they brought fish from the Mediterranean Sea. And look, that's as deep as it gets. That's why it's called the fish gate. I told you, I'm not going to make something up for you. And there's plenty I could have done here, by the way. It's fish. So I could have talked about the loaves and the fish. I could have said the next thing Jesus did was call fishermen to be fishers of men. I'm only going to say what I believe the Bible teaches very clearly. So that is the fish gate, and it's called the fish gate. There you go. Amen. Write it down in your notes. Why is it called the fish gate? Because it is. Moving on. Next was the old gate, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I got to tell you, this was awesome to me. As a dad who's expecting his third daughter, look down at verse 12 in chapter 3. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters it's the only time where the guy goes out there grabs his girls like we're gonna build the wall just like you guys and the girls probably did a better job (laughs) some students identify (laughs) that's just my bias some students identify this with uh, the mishnah gate the hebrew word means second quarter or new quarter as it's most commonly referred to There's a life lesson tucked in the history of this gate. It was this old gate that leads into the new quarter. So why is this important? Because it is from the old that we derive the new. And if we abandon the old, there cannot be a new. Today, the younger generation, even church leadership, who've maybe been there for decades... They're anxious to abandon the old for the sake of the new and all of its appeal and all of its wonder and all of its awe and all of its modernism. Yet the Bible, rather contrarily, paints a picture of the new being built upon the love, wisdom, and encouragement of the old. In efforts to stay modern, they abide in marketing movements rather than producing a multi-generational faith family that together abides in the work of the Holy Spirit. When you abandon the old, it's easy to forget why you're so obsessed with the new. 
And the old can, or the new cannot be without the old. It's, and I'll give you an example of this. It is just as dangerous to separate your church into sections according to age as it is social classes mentioned in James. This is not the reflection of the New Testament church. Why would younger generations want to rob themselves of the blessing of learning from those who have gone before them? And why would the older Christ followers rob themselves of the blessing of passing on such wisdom that they themselves wish they would have had when they were experiencing it? That's not selfless living. That's not wanting to be like Christ. We can't set this up for ourselves. Why? Because we are in this mission together. Like the ancient paths mentioned in Jeremiah 6, as people on this side of Christ Jesus' incarnation, we must not forget he is a prophecy fulfilled himself. And you cannot understand prophecies fulfilled without understanding when they were given. We must not forsake the old for the sake of the new, but understand that without the old, you don't have the new. Three, 13, we're moving on to the valley gate. This is when we kind of take a big, big trip over a huge side of the building. And we're at the valley gate on the west side, okay? West side. All right, for our 90 kids in here, you'll know why I concentrated on that. Uh, valley gate. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 13, this is where Nehemiah began his nocturnal investigation of the ruins of the city. It was located at the southwest corner of the city walls, and over 1,700 feet of this wall was restored. And guess what the next gate is? The dung gate. That's right. Dung. Some of us can explain to our kids what that means. I'll let you do that as appropriate as you wish. This gate was located at the southernmost tip of the city, near the pool of Siloam. It was a main exit to the valley of Hanom, where the city disposed of all of its garbage. In fact, King Josiah had desecrated the place by turning it into a rubbish heap. Knowing the sheep gate is the main entrance, we must also know that any other avenue to truth may lead to something else entirely. There's a concept here to look at the layout of the building. There's kind of an intuition to look out of the way of the building and see where the main entrance is. And it's where the sacrifices are, not where the rubbish lives. 3, 15 through 27, we see the fountain gate. So now we've moved past the south side of town, right? And on the east wall, heading back north, this fountain gate led to the spring that fed the water system in the city. If this gate closes, this city dies. All throughout the Bible, water for drinking is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. Let me read John seven thirty-seven through 38 to you. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Church, we shall draw the power of the Spirit of God from what's inside of us because of salvation, not from parlor tricks or man-made constructs, but from the fountain within us that was given to us by the Spirit of God. When did we start convincing ourselves we had to add something to Jesus Christ? It's not, I'm just not quite holy enough. I'm just not quite obedient enough. Well, are you pursuing Jesus Christ with everything that you have? If the answer is no, then start there. Quit trying to look for things to add to this. He's enough. He's the fountain. His grace is sufficient. The power of the Spirit is from um, 
plenty to obey his commands and live a godly life. Maybe some of us in here today are tired of drawing from broken fountains. Some of us in here may, as followers of Christ, may we need to pray every day not to waste our lives complaining that you don't have the paradise that you covet, but rather live a life of gratitude that you haven't been given the wrath that you deserve. You will be so much more satisfied with the things of God if you live a life of gratitude rather than entitlement. They will become precious to you, sweet to you. Things of this world will grow dim in light of what He has to offer you. In other words, the more I pursue Jesus Christ and His Word and His truth, the less I care about the color of my neighbor's grass. The fountain gate serves as another reminder pointing towards the Christ that when we have Jesus, we have all we ever need. And the enemy would like us to think the total opposite. He knows where he's been defeated, so he doesn't want us to draw power from the fountain. Praise God, we have the fountain. And as we make our way back around, see, that wasn't that painful. You guys are still with me. Only half of you are asleep. In chapter 3, verses 28 through 32, we see the horse gate lead back to the east gate. Horse gate, right? When Solomon imported horses and chariots from Egypt after God had told his people not to place their trust in those things, of course. And then Solomon goes, "Ah, I think I will disobey. This gate became an important part of their defense system. They were always prepared for battle. Battle could happen any day. For the Christ follower, battle does happen every day. Spiritual warfare is all around us. But then the east gate, which is also known as the golden gate, led directly to the temple. Tradition says that Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday through this east gate. And in the 16th century, the gate was then sealed up with blocks of stone by the Turkish sultan, Suleiman, the Magnificent. Jewish and Christian tradition both connect the Golden Gate with the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. You see, the East Gate is referred to several times in Scripture. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from the temple at the East Gate. We see that in Ezekiel 10. And the Lord will return to the city in the same way. Which means what for us, church? We have every reason to associate this gate with the coming of the Lord and to remind ourselves to abide in what's to come, our faith in what's to come. Why is Christmas so sweet? It's not just that Christ came. It's not just the incarnation. It's that we know and have faith that he's coming again. That's what we're living for, is this eternal perspective, while the temporal perspective and the things of this world try to keep us down. We know that Jesus will keep his promises because he's never broken his promises. In fact, when a covenant is formed out of man and God, guess one, guess which one is most likely to break that promise and you know what his response to that is mercy and grace and pursuit you have nothing but gratitude for that first john 2 verses 28 abide in him that when he shall appear which he will we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming so church we did it we made our way around the wall together aren't you proud It's important to understand two things from chapter 3. One, each gate had a name and a function. And number two, Nehemiah begins and ends this chapter 3 with the same gate. The sheep gate. Full circle. Verse 32 says this, And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. 
You see, Nehemiah 3, a team where the people were waiting for their Messiah, were still held to atoning for their own sin through animal sacrifice. They, they were in a time where they were still in captivity, where they had to ask permission from King Artaxerxes to build a wall around their capital city. And all of this led to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So how did it lead to Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Well, all throughout this book, and something you'll know with the, with the continuing sermons in this series, is that Nehemiah is a man of great prayer, saturated in Scripture, that his inspiring call, come, people, let us build the wall, results in the people strengthening their hands for the good work. We will find this man labored at times without stopping to change his clothes, eat or drink, and that there are times where he stands up on behalf of his people against their adversaries. Nehemiah cares about the people. Why? Because he knows God loves the people. Because God's redeemed them, covenanted with them, and promised to raise them up against the one who would crush, or up to the one who would crush the oppressor for them. You see, in this time period, if there's no wall, the people will be oppressed, which could lead them to being dispersed, either because they all flee or because they get carried off captive. But if there is a wall, then they have protection from enemies without and can enforce the law within. And if they can stand against enemies and live in accordance with the Torah, the laws of God, they can preserve the line of descent. Why is it so important that the Hebrew people preserve the lines of descent? From King David flows the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In the mystery of God's providence, I understand that's a mouthful. God's will at work is often done without our knowledge. Our call is to obey. That's what faith is. And many of us will be in those situations where we'll say, Jesus, yeah, we'll obey, but you've got to explain everything in great detail to me before I know where I'm going. That's not faith. That's not confidence in Christ. That's confidence in self, making it look like confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ is saying, I don't know where I'm going, but I trust you. I have one thing to do, and that's to obey your commands. And Jesus is like, it'll be hard. And you're like, it'll be worth it. Do you believe it'll be worth it? It's, it's an interesting chapter because you think you're just reading a list of names and gates, but you end up evaluating where you are in your relationship with Christ Jesus. You see, this is so amazing to me. We have the efforts of Ezra and Nehemiah to thank for our Savior's birth, life, death, and resurrection. God saved us through Jesus. Absolutely. But we also see God's sovereignty, his control, intention with human responsibility as we consider how Nehemiah worked to ensure that there would be a Joseph and Mary so there could be a Jesus. They didn't know that that would be his name. They were obeying the Lord because they loved the Lord and they loved the people. You know what that did to Ezra and Nehemiah? That drew them to their knees in prayer and study compelled them to call the people to repent. So you see, the chapter is filled with gates, with function, with purpose. Some mentioned in prophecies, some used by priests. But we mention the many to draw you back to the one, the sheep gate. You see, Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of every story. He's the Alpha 
and omega. The direction of the Old Testament narrative. He is the beginning and the end. He is the sacrifice foretold in this sheep gate. No longer do we bring our best to be slaughtered because God has paid the price. He has sent his son Jesus Christ to be a payment for our sins. And and now we are at a time fully devoted to him and his mission at this place in redemptive history. You see, Jesus is the only door for the sheep. There is one way to the one true God. There's one. And his name is Jesus. That is our proclamation. Don't let it get fuzzy. Don't let the world pervade it. It's one door to all of salvation in God. And guess what that is? Jesus Christ. He's it. He's the only one. And only one who explains this perfectly is Jesus himself in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. In verse 10, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. I'm reading the whole thing. I didn't get my Bible verse reading today. I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep do what? They follow. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. So are we following strangers? But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. That is not familiar to them. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, and I love, you got to love John for putting in verse 6. Jesus, the figure of speech Jesus used with them, they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus goes on and says again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, the sheep gate, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The the thief comes only to do what? We've been victims of it every day. Steal, kill, and destroy. I was having an awesome day with my kid until she fell off the power wheel. And now she has a big scab on her forehead. And that was the enemy stealing from me. It was a great day and he stole it. Nothing to do with my ignorance of a parent. All the devil. All the devil. But what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of him, guess what that makes you? The sheep. In John 10, verses 2 through 3, when Jesus was telling the story, the scene he was using, the scene in which he was saying it to the people, that was a common sheepfold in the village where different shepherds would bring their sheep each night. And at that time, even, it was not abnormal for there to be a hired doorkeeper to guard the entrance. But in Jesus' story, to really get his point across, he makes it not in the city, but in the country. And he says, this is how it looked. In the country, the shepherd would build a protective enclosure for the sheep so that they could go in for protection and out to feed, like Pastor Neil was discussing in his children's moments. Jesus uses this specific setting in the country so he could be both the shepherd and the door for his people. Any intruders had to get by him to get to us. 
As the door, he let in the true sheep, but as the shepherd, he excluded predators or thieves that would want to harm the sheep. Jesus is the only door of the sheep, and Jesus the Messiah is the only one who can legitimately claim that he's the door. It's the same thing that he later claims in 14.6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, a life. The way, the truth, the life. There's an article there. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus was claiming something incredibly controversial. Even today, you want to start a good old-fashioned controversy? Start talking about how Jesus is the only way you can be right with God. It'll get there real fast. Unbelievers are, are actually okay with you if you say Jesus is a door to God. There's no problem there. They're cool with it. They think that's fine. I also believe Muhammad is a door and Buddha is a door. And heck, nature is a door. Everything's a door. It's like a wonk evader. just goes in every single direction known to man. All religions lead to God, right? There are many doors. Here's where it gets problematic is when you actually take Jesus at his word, it becomes an issue for us. It becomes controversial, guys. Your faith will only be controversial if you live it out. If you keep it privatized like a garden in the back window, it's not going to cause you any issues. But you can expect controversy and pain. You can expect problems if you live it out. When you draw the line that Jesus drew and insists, no, world, he's the only door. And, and if I didn't love you, then I wouldn't say it. I'm saying this because he's the only door. And you have to know. Because we're not commanded to just want to be the only sheep. We want the kingdom to grow on this side of redemptive history, which means you and me grabbing as many people as we possibly can, recognizing as the Spirit of God that does the work, but we are to be faithful and obey like Nehemiah. If Jesus is the sheep gate, then guess what, church? The blood of Christ is the key to the door. The door to God is now opened. For all who believe and repent, not because of what we did or what we wish to happen or what man wrote down in the Word, but because of who Christ is. And He's a God that says, it is finished. And unlike us, when He says it is finished, it actually is. People go, hey, when, was you, when were you saved? The date and the time. I go, you know when I was saved? 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. That's when I was justified. That's when that belief became available to me. That's when the blood of Christ opened the door and the sheep were allowed to come in and not to be cast away or eaten by predators. Jesus made that that possible. In late uh, 2011, uh, there's this really interesting story. You probably, maybe you've heard it, but a couple guys were hiking down at the base of the Himalayan mountains and got caught in one of those flash snowstorms. Uh, ended up being stranded at night, right? Dark, lost. Uh, one of the guys um, ended up having one full match. And the other guy ended up having a third of a match that was used a little bit the night before. And here they are. It, was, uh, it had just dropped from 60 degrees from day to night. And as he goes to strike the first match to build the fire so they can live through the evening, wind and snow cover his gloves and the match is destroyed. And here's this other guy with this third of a match. And at that time, they say it's now 20 below. And you got one shot 20 below, and you got one shot to get this small match lit and a fire going in the middle of a snowstorm where all looks lost, 
And guess what the most precious thing in the world was to those guys at that moment? That match. In this story, the match is miraculously lit, and these men live to tell the story of what saved their lives. But do you know why the match was so incredibly precious to them? It's because they knew the value of that match. It is now the most precious thing to him because it was a matter of life and death. If you know the value of this door, if you know the value of the sheep gate, it's the difference between life and death. It's the most precious thing in your life if you truly know how valuable it is. By your behavior, church, the world will see what you believe. If you believe, how precious is your Savior to you? And do people see that it's precious? If you have not yet believed in the historical, eternal Christ, the Sheep Gate is now open. Believe, confess, repent. Join us as we build something together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for salvation. Father God, where would we be without your kindness, your grace, and your mercy? We have so much to be thankful for, and sometimes even that gratitude can be overwhelming, but what can also be overwhelming is the sin of this world and the fallen nature that we live in. But we worship a God who did not leave us in our mess, but came down, became man, left the palace, gave his life so that we could know God right, so that we could have right relationship with our Father and our Creator. Father, we have 10,000 reasons to praise your name, and we need you every single hour. Father God, may we be filled with the word. May we be filled with your truth and your promises. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.